speaker this morning is Pastor Israel Piri, uh, together with his wife, Pastor Nana. They lead a dynamic church called Shapers Church in Stratham's Park. Pastor Piri was called into the ministry in the year 2002 and he serves under the leadership of Bishop Tudor Bismarck and has personally been trained, equipped and mentored and ordained by Bishop Tudor Bismarck. Uh, Pastor Israel, you know, I, I, I thank God every day for Facebook. Yeah, if it wasn't for Facebook, Zawain, I wouldn't have, yeah, I wouldn't have uh, DM'd and been here today with many, many kids. Yeah, so uh, we thank God for Mark Zuckerberg. Amen. And Pastor Israel is just one of those men of God like Apostle Ben, that I admired and I said to myself, one day I'd like, one day is one day when I'd like to have Pastor Israel minister to the people of me, but you deserve to hear the significant voices of God in this season, and we don't need to ship them in all the way from India, Europe, and the States, amen. amen. Africa, South Africa is so rich, amen. amen. I watched him when he was uh, at one stage reading a book a week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, my God, huh? <laughs> he is a bookworm. He puts so much pressure on all of us, like Pastor LJ said. And he is such an incredible teacher of the Word of God. I see him lately diving into uh, expository preaching. And he's making my baby leap. <laughs> Can you welcome to the platform Pastor Israel Piri? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, amen. It's so good to be here. I want to honor all the men of God, all the pastors, all the leaders. Uh, thank you, Apostle, uh, for such a phenomenal word. Um, thank you, Pastor Bevan and uh, Pastor Zoe. Um, I'm sure he, he was preaching hard and then he just said, Amen. <laughs> you know, when I was uh, young and uh, there was a service in church where they said, we were very prophetic and there was... Um, you know, this prophet has said, if this is holy ground, take off your shoes. Unfortunately, that day, there's a sock I chose. <laughs> it had some potatoes on it. <laughs> I had to disobey the Lord so I can, I can relate, amen. Uh, it's so good to be here. Pastor B, we just want to help you push and uh, just add value to um, what you're doing here. And um, since you gave us the assignment and uh, the verse, we just um, saw it uh, apt to, uh, sorry, to, um, to work with the scripture you gave us, which is from Esther chapter number four. Uh, please turn with me to the book of Esther uh, chapter number four. And the author of Esther is unknown. Some argue that it was Mordecai, um, her older cousin, and some 
uh, dates Esther around the reign of King Xerxes. Uh, the purpose of this book, it's about the Jews who didn't go into... Oh, oh, no problem. One, two. One, two. The purpose of the book of Esther is, it's about the Jews who remained in exile. After Xerxes commanded, um, I mean, after Cyrus gave them freedom to go back to the promised land, only 50,000 Jews went back and a million remained in exile. And um, the majority remained in the land of bondage and refused to go back to the promised land. And it's interesting how people can resist freedom and choose to remain in bondage. Yeah. You can preach salvation, you can preach prosperity, you can preach um, the beauty of holiness, and there's people who are going to resist you and say, we want to stay in exile. So Esther remains, but it's uh, Ezra and Nehemiah who go back to the promised land to build. So as we read, um, Esther chapter number four and the Bible says uh, from the I noticed uh, Apostle Brandon was also using the same version uh, New King James Version Amen When Mordecai learned uh, all that happened he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry He went as far as the front of the king's gate for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth and in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him. So she responded with compassion and not conviction. She her convictions are being tested, but she's responding with compassion. Then Esther called Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn uh, why this was. So Hatach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hetach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hetach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces Know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, um, he is but one law to put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. So, the king, you're not allowed to go in his presence, and he's going to be tested in his conviction or compassion. And if his convictions are strong, he's going to kill you. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, 
yet he yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this that statement changes the whole equation then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai go gather all the Jews who are present in Sushan and fast for me neither eat nor drink for three days night or day my maids and I will fast likewise so I will go to the king which is against the law this is against the law we're going against his convictions and if I perish I perish Father, help us today to be a blessing to Rebirth Church. Help us to to strengthen the vision, to strengthen the team, to strengthen the leadership, to strengthen what you are doing in here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Um, I like to open with uh, what I call a Bible talk, which is um, I like to give some keys to strengthen um, believers' Bible study. It's so important that um, as believers... We gain everything that is in the Word of God. And sometimes we're just ill-equipped in terms of the skills that help us to draw everything out of the Word of God. And um, one of the most powerful keys to interpret the Bible with uh, greater clarity is to understand that the Bible is written in multiple genres. Uh, There's narratives, there's the books of poetry, like uh, the Psalms, Um, There's the books of wisdom like uh, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. There's the books of prophecy like the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, and the Brandons. There's uh, the Gospels, um, the Epistles, and uh, the Apocalypse, the apocalyptic literature. And uh, Esther is under what is known as the narrative genre, the narrative genre. About 40% of the Bible is narrative. It is story. And most preachers in the world today do the bulk of uh, their preaching in the narratives. A lot of preachers build uh, their ministry career around the, the stories in the Bible. And this is because they're very interesting and they're very engaging. And, uh, and they seem very easy to interpret and preach. But there are certain principles which help you get the most out of the narratives. Uh, without diluting the power which God wants you to get out of it and in some cases distorting uh, what God wants you to receive. So the first thing you must consider when you're dealing with uh, the narratives is what is known as the immediate context of the verses, the passages surrounding it. And then you must consider the larger context of the verses as it relates to the whole book. So now looking at such a time as this, we have to look at everything that happened around it, and then we have to step out of the chapter and also look at the whole book. We don't just talk about such a time as this without understanding what happened before that and after that and what happens in the whole book. And then at the same time, you have to look at uh, the context of what is known as um, uh, the meta-narrative of the Bible which is what is the entire story of the Bible and what is the overall storyline of the Bible. The overall storyline of the Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the meta-narrative. It is how it is what the story of the Bible is about. And when we look at Esther, we have to study what role does this book play 
in the bigger picture which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, you have to consider basic components of storytelling. You have to understand setting, characters, plot, narrator, viewpoints, point of views. You have to understand antagonists, protagonists. In Esther, there's a question, who is the protagonist? Because uh, Esther comes across, in my view, as a passive protagonist. And to a certain extent, Mordecai is an active protagonist. And the book could have easily been named the book of Mordecai, based on how active he was. And um, Esther starts off passive, but in this text is where there's a shift, where she finally realized that I've got to do something here. And then number three, consider using exegetical techniques, um, historical analysis, language and grammatical analysis, literary analysis, and of course, theological analysis. In every narrative, there is a theological issue which is being presented in the text. Is it theology proper, the doctrine of God? Is it Christology, the doctrine of Jesus Christ? Is it angelology, the doctrine of angels? Is it soteriology, the doctrine of salvation? Is it uh, ecclesiology, is it the doctrine of the church? Is it theodicy, the doctrine uh, of the problem of evil, reconciling evil and the goodness of God? Then number four, consider whether this narrative is prescriptive or descriptive. And this is where sometimes the narratives get very tricky. Because there are some things which are just descriptive. It means it's just describing what happened. It's not telling us that we should expect what happened there to happen right now. It's just a description. And sometimes as preachers, we make the mistake of turning description into prescription. He opened the Red Sea. Please go to Durban with a stick and open the Red Sea and walk to India. Moses opened the Red Sea. You're a Red Sea opener. Are you hearing me here? So we can take something descriptive and make it prescriptive. And that's where narratives get tricky. What we, what is uh, an imperative and what is an indicative, that conflict. Number five, consider what the passage meant to the original biblical audience. And that's the first mistake we sometimes make as preachers. We don't consider what was this saying to the original audience. We're, we want to get the amen from the audience today before understanding what it meant to the original audience. Number six, consider how the meaning of the text back then applies to today and how the story now involves us today. And then number seven, most importantly, you've got to find Jesus in the text. He is in every story. He is in every story. There is no story in the Bible where he cannot be found. Even the serpent which was risen in Deuteronomy, that was Jesus being risen. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And the venom of sin is broken when we look to him and we believe on him. We are justified by faith. Are you hearing me here? Give the Lord the praise right there.
So in order to understand the meaning of the text we're using in the theme of our conference, which is taken from Esther chapter 4 verse 14 when it says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In order to understand the meaning of this passage or any passage of scripture, it is imperative that we get to grips with the larger context of the passage. Concerning context, Osborne said the first step to serious Bible interpretation is the larger context of the passage. Unless we grasp the whole before dissecting the passage, our interpretation is doomed from the start, unquote. In order to, un- to get the context of this passage, we're going to look at the text through its historical context. Then we're going to look at it through its literary context or the passages surrounding it. And then we're going to draw a theological principle that is at stake in the text that we've read. This exercise is important for every scripture that we do. Anytime we approach the word, we are dealing with two audiences. We're dealing with the original audience in the Bible, the audience in exile, Esther's audience. That's our first audience, the original audience. And then we're dealing with the new audience in South Africa in 2022. So as preachers, we are bridges. We are time machines. We are drawing that meaning from there in the past and applying it to a 2022 contemporary situation. Helm says that make the original biblical audience your main concern before rushing for the contemporary applications for today, unquote. What this means is that our reading of the word must involve listening more than preaching. Many times we approach the Bible with the intention to preach more than we are intending to hear what is being said here. We come to the word with a message in mind already. And we want the scripture to confirm what I already want to preach. So instead of coming to listen, what was the message saying back then to the original audience, we want that audience to conform to what we want it to be today. So the historical context of this text has to be, uh, I was tempted to begin in 722 BC when the Northern Kingdom was taken away by the Assyrian Empire, but I said, let's go to 605 BC, the first Babylonian deportation. So to understand the history of where Esther is, we have to find where is Esther in history. So we have to start at 605 BC when the children of Israel entered what is known as the Babylonian captivity when Nebuchadnezzar came and uh, as a fulfillment of prophecy, God used Babylon as his instrument of judgment against the sin which plagued the children of Israel for years, which was the sin of idolatry and rebellion against Torah, rebellion against the law. The Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years and it was a fulfillment of the prophecy given to the prophet Jeremiah in 29 verse 10 before our favorite Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Modern day Christians don't want to start from verse 10. They just want to start from verse 11. 
and sometimes they'll get verse 11 outside of context because they don't have the complete framing and he says for thus the lord after 70 years are completed at babylon i will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place so jeremiah was telling them that you're going to be in bondage for 70 years and that was from 605 bc um, up until 539 bc and the reason why he had to tell them that is there was a prophet saying this bondage is only lasting two years but he told them it's going to last 70 years and for i know the plans i have for you don't follow what this prophet is saying this bondage will take longer there's some things which take longer in ministry we think it's going to happen quickly the praise team is going to be on a hillsong level in two years sometimes you can be in the bondage of bad worship for 70 years <laughs> hallelujah you don't have to die to go to hell just have bad worship every sunday before you preach are you hearing me here so in 539 bc cyrus comes the mead and he ushers in the persian empire he defeats babylon and uh belshazzar was having one of his drunken sprees and he didn't even put up a fight he was so drunk they were having a party and they snuck in through the canals herodotus tells us that they came in and deposed them without a fight because they were too drunk uh, to focus and fight so cyrus comes and in his first year in power in 538 BC, he makes a decree giving the Jews freedom to return to the promised land. And the first wave of Jews went in 538 BC, led by a man called Zerubbabel. That's a good name for a pit bull. When they, <laughs> when they returned uh, from uh, the Babylonian captivity, the first order, they said, now that we're back, let's rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. And in 536 BC, two years later, they began the process of rebuilding the temple. And it took them six years to build the foundation. Foundations take time. Sometimes we want a church that is, we want an elevation church in two years. We want, we want a Rhema church in two years. The quality of the foundation determines the longevity. Never rush the foundation. If the foundation is shallow, when the storms of life come, that church is going to sink because they didn't build firm foundations. Six years working on foundations. That means you can't see anything visibly. They're just digging for six years to build foundations. And sometimes you can't see anything visibly on Facebook. Yeah. It don't matter. You're just building foundations. We are building foundations. We don't have to be noisy. We don't, we don't have to be showing off. We don't have to put crowd shots every two minutes every day. We, just, we are building foundations. Because we know where God is taking us as rebirth church. Amen. So after six years, they began to praise God with shouts of joy from the foundation. So here you are two years later, 
You're shouting for joy that we're building the foundation. Don't wait for the work to be completed to praise God. Praise God in the process. You get one new microphone, you praise God like you got 10. You get one new keyboard, you start to dance and make noise about that new keyboard. You, you get one new believer, you dedicate one baby the whole year, one baby dedicated. You celebrate God for that one baby. Amen. And um, they celebrated for joy. And then in Ezra 3, verse 11 to 2, it tells us something interesting about that moment, that in the middle of the shouts of joy and celebrating for the foundation of the temple, there was a division of all the priests, Levites, and fathers of houses who had seen the previous temple and were not praising God and shouting, but were weeping because they remembered the glory of the former temple. And this one didn't come close to its splendor. They remembered how um, splendiferous the previous temple was according to Solomon's um, benevolence and generosity and all the resources they put just into that temple. And they were looking around at all the young priests celebrating a mediocre foundation. They knew that there was a higher level. And one of the things, Pastor Bevan, we have to be careful of as new generation church leaders is to safeguard against recency bias and thinking that what we are doing today in our generation of church is the highest level of church in history. Many times when a new generation of gifts begin to lead the church, during that season of changing of the guard, that's when warfare increases and that's when the enemy plants his tears which will release spiritual decline in a new generation. And sometimes because we have mastered church production in our generation, with beautiful lights, beautiful cameras, beautiful buildings, amazing music, we think that church service production reflects spiritual health and vitality. And sometimes we can rubbish the contribution of fathers of the faith who've gone before us and begin to sing they killed 1,000 but we in our generation we are killing 10,000 look at our YouTube videos look at our social so now let's look at the theology of Esther the dominant, the dominant theological principle in the book of Esther is the doctrine of providence this is because the book of Esther for those who are Bible students who know that uh, God's name is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. But God is at work behind the scenes throughout the book. And providence is how God works behind the scenes of everyday life to achieve his purpose on earth. It's God's invisible hand involved in our lives. And many times uh, it's God working through our simple day-to-day -day activities to achieve his purpose. And as uh, charismatic sometimes, uh, because we are driven by faith and the supernatural, we sometimes miss God because we expect God to move in the spectacular. And just because we're not seeing a Red Sea being opened or a Goliath being taken down, we get discouraged in our faith. But we don't understand that probably God's providence is moving in places you cannot see. And many times, most of God's work, the work that he's going to do in our lives and ministry, 
is through the simple day-to-day invisible acts of favor and grace uh, and which in the moment sometimes we can miss and in order to understand what providence is we have to contrast it with a miracle a miracle is a spectacular intervention of god that cannot be hidden or denied but God's providence is a simple intervention of God that can be so hidden that you can miss it and just take it for coincidence. Helm said God's providence is the working of God's power to uphold, guide, and care for his creation. This is a continual creation as opposed to notions that God created the world and just walked away and left it. That even after the seventh day, his providence is at work. Every time the sun rises, every time um, there's enough oxygen, every time, uh, every time everything is just working in order, it's God's providence. It's not a miracle, but it's something that he is involved in, in the natural activity of everyday life. Helm stated again that the work of providence is an aspect of the sovereignty of God with respect to his creation. He has not only created the universe, but he upholds it and governs it. He's got the whole world today in his hands. Another writer said, it is how the supernatural, it is how the supernatural God works his supernatural purpose through natural means. While a miracle is how the supernatural God works his supernatural purpose through supernatural means. Unquote. A miracle is how God uses the supernatural to achieve his will. And providence is how God uses the natural to achieve his purpose. And in Esther, there are no major miracles. There's no Red Sea being opened. There is no ten plagues to deliver them from what's about to happen. But God is just working behind the scenes. Oh, even in rebirth, God is just working behind the scenes in this church. You might not have had blind eyes being opened. You might not have had someone sow one million rand in one service. But God has been working behind the scenes. How you got this venue, God is just working behind the scenes. During uh, two years, that means you guys were birthed in a pandemic. The world has stopped. And God is working behind the scenes. Many churches closed in this pandemic. Many. I've got friends who shut down church. But God's providence brought your church out of a global. Ah, Shambaraba Sunday. And the difficulty, Pastor Bevan, is we can think that God is not moving. Because he is working with providence, not miracles. Because he's doing it in natural ways. And uh, though the name of God is not mentioned, God's providence is all over this book. And there are some seasons in ministry where things like God is doing nothing here. Nothing spectacular is happening. But God is moving on your behalf behind the scenes. And your job is just to be faithful every Sunday. In the natural day to day, every week just showing up, having church, just every week serving God with honesty, with love, with integrity, with passion. And before you know it, God is going to 
take you somewhere through his divine providence. Amen. Say God is in this church. So in chapter 1, we see the groundwork of how Esther rises to prominence. It's all set up by three feasts. The first feast is called by King Xerxes. It's a 180-day feast to show his wealth and power to his officials and leaders. This feast corresponds with what the Greek historian Herodotus called the War Council of 483 BC. Because um, at this time, Persia were wanting to expand their kingdom west and they were facing trouble with the Greeks. And it's after this particular feast where Vashti rebelled, where they went to fight the per they went to fight the Greeks, and they had this famous battle called the Battle of Thermopylae, where they came with a hundred thousand troops versus the three hundred. You watch the movie the three hundred? Yeah. It's after this meeting that they go there and they get defeated because they thought that military strength is about numbers. But the Spartans believed it's if you can train a few people to be powerful fighters, fearless fighters, you can take down any army. And sometimes in the foundation stages, you're just training your fighters to take down a powerful demonic city called Johannesburg, which doesn't want to submit to the kingdom of God. You're taking down a drug culture. You're taking down a puza culture. You're taking down a divorce culture. You're taking down an absentee father culture. And you've just got a few well-trained servants who can take down insurmountable odds all around you. Ah, my God. And that's the meeting they're having in the first chapter. They're getting ready to go after Sparta and they're going to fail miserably at the hands of a few mighty men. So it's after this council, he has now a second feast and he calls for seven days of eating and drinking wine. And it's at this feast that Xerxes wants to show how beautiful his wife is um, and he can't see her Instagram on his phone. So he sends her a DM and says, baby, come here, I want you to come dance. Uh, for the guys and show them how beautiful you are and she refuses to come um, and uh, one of the the seven princes told the king we cannot allow Vashti's rebellion to stand because as a leader you're going to set a precedent for the whole nation every wife is going to rebel because of Vashti and the principle here is culture is created by example in any place, the behavior of the leader becomes the behavior of the people. What you allow in your behavior as a leader, your followers will become. And a lot of problems we have in South Africa, in particular in terms of crime, the criminals are just following the real criminals in parliament. They're following the criminals in suits. The criminals, the looters who are looting, we're following the looters who are looting escort looting every SOE. The looters in Durban were like, ah, you're looting there. And looter continue. We'll just copy you. People can steal and not go to jail. And open restaurants and nothing happens. Are you hearing me here? The king realizes that we have to set the example here. 
and they removed Vashti as queen. And uh, that was God's providence behind the scenes. Esther didn't know that someone was being demoted somewhere for her to be promoted. My Nigerian anointing is here now. Someone is being demoted in this city and you shall be elevated. Every witch in this town is being demoted and children of God are being raised up. Amen. So then in chapter 2 we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. We're told that Esther was an orphan and her older cousin Mordecai adopted her. This was divine providence. Even, her, or even losing her parents, God's divine providence was at work. Because if she wasn't an orphan, probably her parents would have gone back to Israel with the first group. But through divine providence, even bad things become good things through God's divine providence. I don't know what tragedies you've experienced. You could have lost money. You could have lost your job. You could have lost loved ones. You don't know what God's divine providence is doing through something naturally evil to bring out the good. And we're told that she was lovely and beautiful. She had no say and no power in her loveliness and in her beauty. But she is lowly and highly unlikely. She's an unlikely candidate for something significant. And there's nothing as beautiful in the earth when God raises up unlikely people. Just this church in Rumisich, which no one knows. Just called Reaper. They're just starting. No one knows where they're coming from. And 10 years from now, you see God has lifted them up. And you're like, where did they come from? It was just God's divine providence working in secret and progressively he lifted them up. And the decree went out through all Persia that we need all the beautiful women in the land who want to be queen are welcome to enter a beauty contest where the king would choose a new bride. This was after the battle of Thermopylae. They had just lost. They were frustrated. And they said, how can we encourage the king? Let's find a wife. If the 300 didn't stand, <laughs> Esther would not be there. God's providence is even working in this Ukraine and Russia thing. God is still cooking something for the church. Even in these conflicts that we are seeing in our, in our government and in, in our politics, we don't know what God is cooking for the people of South Africa, the church in South Africa. So when the decree for the search of the new queen comes, Mordecai has the vision to take Esther to the palace to be considered the next queen. And as soon as she gets there, the Bible says she finds favor with Haggai the eunuch in charge of all women. This was God's providence again, moving behind the scenes. She didn't even say anything. She just walked in the room and favor came upon her. You shall walk in rooms and say nothing. And God's favor intoxicate people in that room to bless you. Are you hearing me here? Oh my God. Then after a year of preparation, all the women were sent to see the king. And in 2.17 it says that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she obtained grace and favor and she became queen. She didn't say anything again. She just walked in the room and stood there. 
and divine providence just shined on her and an evil king fell was smitten and fell in love god's about to use evil people to bless you god is about to use bad evil-hearted people to bless you and in this chapter esther does nothing god does everything by his providence behind the scenes he removes vesti he inspires Mordecai to send her to be queen, gives a favor with the eunuch, and Xerxes, this king, this historic, powerful king, falls in love. And all these battles, God fights for her. There are certain battles where God only wants you to stand still and observe. You're not meant to fight. You're not meant to fight every battle. Some battles, you're just meant to stand still and observe. It's like this ANC battle, we're not meant to fight. Just stand and observe. What's going to happen to that money in the couch? We just have to observe and trust God. When everybody's losing their mind, saying the land is going to be this and that, we just have to stand still and observe. And say God is going to fight this thing. Whatever he has in store for rebirth, no matter who is president or who is not, this church will rise and become everything that God wants it to be. Just observe and worship. And when you look at your journey with the Lord retrospectively, there are seasons called, I can't explain it, seasons. There are seasons in ministry where you say, I don't know how, in COVID, how we made it. I don't know how our marriage so, so survived. I, I don't know how we, we managed to buy a house in, in such a hard time. I, I don't know how we managed to send kids to school. I, I don't, they are called I don't know how. Any I don't know how is God's providence. Where he just shows up in a natural way, which you can't explain. And then in chapter 3 and 4, yeah, we're now coming to this text. There is a battle coming which is going to require Esther not to watch God fight for her. But she's now called to fight too. In chapters 3 and 4, we now get the setup of the text when a man called Haman, the Agagite. If you understand Agag, King Agag, um, he had an issue with King Saul. King Saul was meant to kill him, but he refused to kill him. And God was so mad, so there was now a history between him and the Jews. And he had a personal hatred for the Jews and Mordecai refused to bow to him. And then uh, Haman gets the king to sign a decree to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire, to wipe them out, men, women, and children. We must kill them all and take all their wealth. It was similar to what um, Hitler was planning. This decree meant that all the Jews who remain in exile and those in the promised land who rebuilt the temple were all sentenced to the same death. Ezra was going to get killed. Nehemiah was going to get killed if she didn't remain there. That's why people, us who are in ministry, we also need those who are in the marketplace. We need each other. Because there's times the anointing is on you to save the church. Are you hearing me here? Are you hearing me here? This was an attempt to stop the incarnation of Jesus by killing the seed of Abraham. 
And in chapter 4, Mordecai sends an urgent message to Esther, informing her of the king's decree to kill all the Jews. And this shocked me when I read this. Her first response, I didn't like it. Esther says, she's not in a position to help because by law, no one including her can walk in the presence of the king or you'll be executed unless he drops the golden scepter to allow you to enter his presence. She sends word to Mordecai that I can't help. The king hasn't called me to see him in 30 days. I can't walk in to see him. Have you ever asked for help in the church and people start making excuses? I can't come because this, that, and the third. Oh my God. So initially it seems as if Esther was hesitant to help. And uh, she wa- and the reason why she was hesitant to help because she was so used to God fighting for her that she never got to fight a battle. Sometimes consistently experiencing the favor of God can kill the fighter in you. In ministry, there are times of favor and there are times of warfare. And uh, there are times when God will just open doors and you walk in. But then there are times God will open the door but put bouncers in front of the door. And you have to fight the bouncers standing in front of the door that God has opened for you. And the challenge is Esther was just used to doors without bouncers. But some of us, when we were, we were born in situations where there were bouncers in front of walls, not even doors. After defeating the bouncer, we had to break through a wall to get in. Are you hearing me here? Some of us had to learn how to kill two birds with one stone. Some of us had to learn how to kill birds with no stones and no birds. Are you hearing me here? That's the level of warfare. Have you ever had to fight and kill two birds and there's no birds and there's no stones and people at home are hungry? Are you hearing me here? That's called ministry. Then when, uh, so because she's so used to this easy life, everything in ministry is just happening. Everything is awesome. Everything is just, you know, God is just blessing us. We've got so many campuses around the world and we got... Hello to our 20 campuses all around the city. We want to thank. Everything is just happening. When you encounter a fight in those conditions, you panic and retreat without putting up a fight. Esther has been walking in favor and has not faced any warfare. But now for the first time, there's a demand on her to fight. She creates an excuse. Because subconsciously, she's thinking the favor of God has done it all these times. He's just going to do it again without me. So when Mordecai gets the message of Esther creating an excuse to stay out of the fight, he sends this message back as a rebuke and as a correction. The context of this passage is not a... Uh, it's not a modern day faith prophecy. It is a rebuke and a correction. When he says, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house, you will perish. Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
This is a rebuke. Are you hearing me here? To people who think church just happens without sacrifice. So when you're telling them for such a time as this, you're actually correcting them and disciplining them to understand that things don't just happen without sacrifice. He warns it that this is not a fight you can sit out. So every Sunday you're telling people, this is not a church where you can just sit. This is not a church where you can just show up and you, you come in late and you're the first one to leave. When you're saying for such a time as this, you're saying this is not a church where you can be from January to December and not give anything. Are you hearing me here? Ah. But I want you to know that if you don't give, deliverance will come from another place. There are some fights you're going to sit out. But there are some fights you cannot choose to be passive. He closes by giving you this opportunity when he says, yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This verse is a call to arms. You're calling people to fight. You're calling people to fight for the kingdom. You're calling people to sacrifice. It's a rebuke against the spirit of not wanting to sacrifice for the house. You are, you are calling people to shift from being chickens to becoming pigs in the house of God. Because when it's time for breakfast and you want bacon and eggs, if you've got chickens, they're just involved. But pigs are committed. Because for the bacon to be on the plate, they had to be cut. Are you hearing me here? You need pigs in your church. Shout, I am a pig. <laughs> we need pigs, hallelujah. The anointing of a pig may come upon you to sacrifice for the house. This text is a call to arms. Firstly, it's designed to make you understand the purpose of God in placing you in places of power and influence as a child of God. Our push for prosperity and success and influence has to be rooted in a heart for the house of God. A heart for advancing the kingdom. A heart for evangelizing the world. You're not getting rich just for your own selfish ends. You're getting rich to push the gospel into the earth. Secondly, the text is designed to make us never allow an opportunity to advance the kingdom to pass us by. The opportunity came the first time. She almost let that opportunity pass her by. But Esther said, but, but Mordecai said, you're not going to allow this opportunity to, to, to push the kingdom forward. All this stuff that has happened for you to be queen, maybe it was just for this moment. For such this time. All this stuff that happened, Vashti, all this stuff, it was for this moment, Esther. Don't let this moment pass you by. Everything you've been through in your life, maybe it was for this church. Every battle, every struggle, it was for you to be a part of this ministry and to serve in this ministry. Don't allow this opportunity to serve in the kingdom to pass you by. Thirdly, it shows the power of confronting someone with the truth when they are wrong. Mordecai confronted Esther. This text is confrontational. It's confrontational. 
it's the tone of this when you're reading a verse you must try and catch the tone what's the emotion our modern emotion is you're called for such a time as this you're called to win a grammy you're called for such a time as this the it, it, it's it's the tone is a tone of anger and rage you are called for this wake up this is the moment don't miss the moment it, it, it's aggressive this text growls at someone it's not it's not smiling it's not patting them on the back it's like um world cup for those who are watching it it's like the penalty is there and now the leg is shaking you were called for this this is the moment you've been working your whole career for get there and score that lukaku you were called for this moment how can you miss that's the tone of the verse it's someone about to blow it someone about to blow their opportunity to advance the meta-narrative of the gospel and they're about to blow it and he's saying this is it this is the reason why fourthly we see the power of having a teachable heart no matter how high up you go esther was teachable when she she received the rebuke she didn't just ignore her cousin and call him a hater in the church today all correction and criticism you're called a hater we're creating narcissists in church where every sunday you're told you hater your enemies your haters and everyone is just this flawless superhero on a mission surrounded by haters she received the correction and she said i have to save the day and then it shows us not to be afraid to sacrifice for the kingdom of god because Esther changed her mind and was ready to sacrifice. When she gets to 4.15, she says, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days. Because now she knows that if that scepter doesn't fall, I'm going to die. You know what? I'm ready to die now. I will fast likewise and I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She is now willing to sacrifice her life, lose all comfort, lose her position. She's ready to lay down her life. Ministry is not for people who are willing to surrender all. Not willing to surrender all. You've got to be willing to surrender all for this thing. Pastor Bev, surrender all. There's going to be hard days. It's going to be tough moments. The toughest moments in church are dealing with the tragedies and the pain people go through. Someone dies, someone, my mother died, my, just processing the pain of people is the hardest part of this job. But you've got to be willing to go. In closing, where is Jesus in this text? Jesus is Mordecai calling us to evangelize the world that is being destroyed by sin. Calling us that we're called for such a time as this, as the LGBTQ agenda advances, as all this evil, as all these problems happen in South Africa, this is what we were called for as the church. Jesus is the golden scepter that gives us access to the king. What Jesus did on the cross dropped the golden scepter 
of the king of eternity and now we have access to the throne all day every day jesus is also esther when she said if i perish i perish for he was willing to die for us and he did where are you this morning in terms of sacrificing for rebirth where are you are you a chicken are you a pig you've been called for such a time as this what are you doing for this church when you're called do you sacrifice do you feel they keep bothering us they they keep saying we need more money we need you to show up at eight we we this sunday it's too cold i can't show up i've got a headache i can't show up i've preached through many headaches i've preached through many flus I've preached through death. My dad died on a Friday. I preached on a Sunday and went to the funeral. What are you willing to sacrifice? Are you hearing me here? I've preached through good days. I've preached with my wife angry with me in the front row. You have not been in ministry if you haven't preached with an angry wife who's like, I want to see the sermon today. And the trick is you just start with a joke. Stand, babe, and show them how beautiful. <laughs> I'm revealing secrets, right? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. The journey of ministry is hard. Church is hard. You're going to have many ups and downs. But it's the best job in the world. There's nothing you can ever do that can satisfy. I I never see church as a as work. You know, it's my birthday tomorrow, and someone was saying, "You're going to preach. You should be somewhere party." I'm like, "This is my present to preach to the children of God." My wife was saying, "How are you going to preach on your birthday?" My best present is the gospel the privilege to preach about Christ. I'm happy. And they were planning something big. I said, don't waste your time. Keep it small, simple. Don't kill yourselves. To preach Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm at my happiest. I'm at my happiest. This is a blessed church. We're praying for you. And um, great things are going to come. Take your time. Build. Don't be moved by everything online. Don't be moved by what you see on TBN. You know, you can come from, you know, you've had that bad service. So you go home and you put TBN. <laughs> and it starts, the first, why, the first video is all these people. <laughs> Before they even show the preacher, this, the first shot, it's called the establishing shot. They start, you see thousands of people. Then it comes, hi guys, this is my Bible. I, I am what it says I am. And that day you have that winter, you know, there's, there's always that one winter service where everyone sees the weather. And as you wake up, you're like, Eloi, Eloi, love us My God, my God. Have you ever had a service where everyone is late and there's 10 visitors and it's just you? Don't worry, they're coming. Huh? It's just the way. <laughs> but it's part of the process. 
part of the process. We have to keep the word, prayer, and keep Christ uh, the center of it all. So many people sacrificed for years for us to be here. The first 300 years of the church, 2 million people killed for the gospel. We are privileged to do this legally and not get killed. So there's nothing we can go through which can match what Paul, Peter, Ivanius, Origen, and all the early church fathers went through. There's nothing. Augustine, all these guys, they all were killed for this. We're so blessed to be able to do this. Amen. Amen. Give God a praise. Amen. I'll take two questions. If you have, anyone's got a question before I go, five, four. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Amen. Family, you are highly favored this morning. I even lost my appetite. <laughs> My the God. word was so good this morning, I even lost my appetite. It all felt like saying that Jesus, my, my meat is doing me. <laughs> Family, we're going to get straight into uh, breakfast. Thank you so much, Pastor Ibra. Um, thank you so much uh, oh to your lovely wife. That's for ah, her, not for you. you. Flowers. <laughs> and uh, the gift bag. Uh, I'm just going to give my wife over to... Um, just give us announcements about the tables and the meals because I'm so bad at announcements, I'll probably mess it up. Um, family, the serving table is on my um, right hand side at the back. Um, let's just go by table number, please be swift at the back. <laughs> and yes, let's just enjoy each other's. Um, company um, until the presence of the Holy Spirit and there is a photo booth somewhere. Okay. Just see where the big umbrella is. Please take pictures before you leave. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. How do we do this? Hey, man, let me the meal. Can you stand? On, I was on aeroplane mode, sorry. Heavenly Father, thank you for the meal that you spread out before us. Thank you that we got to hear your word applied in our lives. I pray that from this day forward, Lord, we become such avid Bible students, students of